We don't use the word sluggard today very much. A sluggard, the Bible says, is a lazy person, doesn't work hard. And I must say, all I have to do is to just look at Jeremy and I feel like a sluggard. You see him working around, checking things out. We're thankful for all his labors. Now please turn to Matthew 9, passage I read to you earlier, and I ask you, as we begin, whether you think there are people who are unsavable. Are there people that you look at them and you think, well, they're so bad that uh, if anyone can be too bad to be saved, that would be that person. Perhaps uh, it's the kind of people that uh, I would call the Pitcairn people. Let me tell you about the Pitcairn men. Some of you will know about a, a ship called the the Bounty, 1787, there was a mutiny on it, and the mutineers, mutineers uh, took Captain Bly and those who supported him and sent them off in rowboats and took the ship, sailed back to Tahiti, where they uh, took women, and then they sailed off and found an island, an inhabited island called Pitcairn Island. They thought, well, now this is a wonderful place, and we'll take these women and we'll go there and we'll set up our own society, which they did. And um, they took all they could from the ship and then they set it on fire so no one would know that they were there. And um, then they went on to live on Pitcairn Island. And the next 10 years were uh, very difficult years and troublesome years because these people, now they had freedom to do whatever they want and live whatever they wanted. And... um, The men in particular were vile men, wicked men. They found a way to to, uh, make alcohol from the plants on the island, and they became alcoholic. They were drunk for days on end, weeks on end at times, and they began fighting amongst each other and began killing one another. And until uh, there was only two of the mutineers left, a man by the name of Edward Young and a another man by the name of Alexander Smith. And by that time, the women and the children were just completely at, their, at the end of their rope with these, these men and even now finally these two men. So much so that they took all the guns, did the women, and they took the children, took the guns, and they barricaded themselves on a particular part of the island to keep themselves safe from these two men. So maybe these women of that Pitcairn Island would say, well, now there, those two men, they are unsavable. They're so wicked. We want nothing to do with them. They are without any redeeming qualities, and they are outside of the pale of God's grace. Jonah would have said the Ninevites were unsavable. Perhaps not so much unsavable as people who shouldn't be saved. He knew God as the kind of gracious God who likely to save even people like that, but he said they shouldn't be saved, and that's why he ran away. It's interesting that uh, Charles Darwin thought that the people of Tierra del Fuego were unsavable. He, uh, Tierra del Fuego was, uh, was a group of islands at the southernmost tip of uh, South America, and, and uh, Darwin saw those people, and he said they're so rotten, they can't be saved. Nothing good can come of them, and, but... Uh, Missionaries reached them, and the society was transformed so much so that uh, the missionary society that reached them, Darwin 
supported them financially for the rest of his days. Perhaps there are people you think are unsavable. Perhaps there are people you feel are unsavable, unsavable because you wouldn't really think that because you're, you're sovereign grace people. But uh, you almost feel that. If you would ask people who were followers of Jesus in the New Testament era, are there any people who are unsavable? Well, Matthew would have been at the top of that list. And not just Matthew, but his kind. I mean, his people. It's okay. His group. They would have been considered outside of the pale of God's grace. And yet here, in this passage, we read in verses 9 and 10 that one such is saved and Matthew is brought to Christ. And we want to think about that today as we prepare our hearts for the table. God saving the worst of sinners. Let's think first of all about a poor sinner. A poor sinner named Matthew, we read in verse 9. A man called Matthew. Now, why does Matthew mention his conversion here? Well, not to draw attention to himself, but rather to draw attention to Jesus. Whenever you talk about your testimony, the intent is not to say what a fine fellow you are, uh, but uh, rather to say what a glorious Savior Jesus is. So why does Matthew talk about his conversion here? Well, it's to show that Jesus forgives sinners. The whole point of verses 1 to 8 is that Jesus not only heals, but more importantly, he forgives. The people need to be forgiven of their sins. And sometimes God is at work to show people that they need to be forgiven. Perhaps you remember in your own life how God worked in your life and convicted you. He made you feel guilty. He made you feel, not just understand in your head, but feel in your heart, that you're a sinner, and not just a sinner sort of in an objective uh, sense, but personally understanding that in terms of your nature and in terms of your practice, you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. And that was Matthew's situation. Matthew would have been made to understand that he was a sinner who needed saving. He was a man who needed forgiveness. So Matthew tells about his conversion. What do we know about Matthew? Well, we know Matthew was a rich man. We know he was a rich man because tax collectors in those days tended to be rich. And we know that he was a rich man because Luke tells us in, in his uh, account of this conversion uh, that um, Matthew gave a great feast in his home. So he had a home, and he had the wherewithal to give a great feast for all his friends and all his family, family, and all his tax collector buddies. He could give a great feast, so clearly he was a man of some means. So we know that Matthew was a rich man. And then Matthew was a corrupt man. And we know he's corrupt because, well, they tell us that all tax collectors were corrupt. It's very dangerous to lump all the people in a particular group into that kind of category, but that's the way people thought, and that's, frankly, still how they think. But Matthew uh, was a corrupt man. Uh, There were three different types of tax collectors. There was a tax farmer. The tax farmer would buy from the Romans a certain area. 
And he would be in charge of that when it comes to taxes. Then there would be the chief, un, chief tax collector. He would be under the tax farmer. So he's the chief tax collector, and he would be in charge of all the tax collectors who are underneath him. And so underneath that second fellow is the tax collector, people like Matthew. And they're the ones who had contact with people like us. They would come to us, and they would tax us. That's the kind of man uh, that Matthew was. That's the job that he had. And they taxed everything. So like being in Canada. They taxed everything. They taxed, if you wanted to drive on a road uh, or walk on a road, they would tax you. If you uh, wanted to enter a marketplace, they would tax you. If you wanted to cross a bridge, they would tax you. If you had animals to pack things on and travel with, they would tax the animals. If you had a cart, they would tax the wheels. If you had a cart, they would tax the axles on the cart as well. So they taxed everything. Rome said, you can tax so much on a particular tax, you could, you could charge so much. And the tax collector then would have the freedom to add to that tax. So if Rome said 2%, they could make it 10% and they would pocket the difference. And they did that all the time to their own benefit and to the detriment of everybody around them. So these people were corrupt. The system was corrupt. The people in it were corrupt. And there was, in those days, in the first century, some effort at reform, but still, these people were corrupted. So you think of Matthew. Matthew's a rich man. He's a corrupt man as well. And he was a hated man. He was hated not only because he was gouging people, but because he was a Jew who was gouging Jews under the authority of the hated Romans. And so he was a traitor, not just corrupt. He committed treason against his people, and his conduct was offensive in the sight of God. And so the zealots of that day who were trying to overthrow the Roman yoke would hate people like Matthew, the tax collector, who was cooperating with Rome and oppressing his people, his own people. It's one thing for Rome to oppress the Jews. It's another thing for a Jew to cooperate with the Romans to oppress the Jews. And so he was a rich man and a corrupt man and a hated man. And now, extraordinarily, he's a saved man. He was living in Capernaum, and he worked in Capernaum. And the Lord Jesus, in those days, in his Galilean ministry, had made Capernaum to be the center of his ministry, the base of operations for his work in Galilee. And uh, Matthew probably heard about him. And Matthew may well have listened to him. And Matthew may well have witnessed some of his miracles. Matthew may well have been an earshot of what Jesus said and and able to see what Jesus did in terms of the healing of the paralytic. Because you'll notice that it says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw. You see verse 9? As Jesus passed on from there, he saw. So he, he does the miracle, and he forgives the man, and as he's about to go, as he's walking, he sees Matthew. So there's Matthew. This man, this rich and corrupt and hated individual, There's Matthew. And the wonderful news of the gospel, you see, is that Jesus comes to save people just like Matthew. 
corrupt man, a sinful man, a wicked man, a man who has all kinds of goods in this world, but nothing in terms of the riches of grace in his soul. A man who was in desperate need because he's a wicked man and therefore he's a sinner and therefore he is under the condemnation of God. He's a desperate man. For many years he wouldn't know it, but he's a desperate man. He's in a dangerous position. He thinks he's fine, but he's not. The wonderful news of the gospel is that Jesus comes for people like that. He comes for the worst of sinners. The Jews would have seen him as the worst of sinners. He's, not, he's so corrupt, he's not allowed to testify in court. You don't have him for dinner. But the Bible says that Jesus came for people like that, for the worst of sinners. And he came for people like us. God wants to save such as these. And you'll notice in verse 13, Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You see, verse 12 says that he came, he's a, he's a physician now, he describes himself, Jesus describes himself as a physician. And I've come for the sick, not for, the, for those who are well. I've come for sinners to save them. And God, he says, desires mercy, not sacrifice. He quotes Hosea. Hosea is all about the love of God for poor sinners like us. And he says, I've come to rescue those kinds of people, people who are sinful, people who are despised, people who are in a desperate way because of their, their iniquity. I've come for people like that. So God wants to be merciful. He delights to be merciful to people like that. Christ came to save people like that. Paul says the marvelous thing about the coming of the Lord Jesus is that he came to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Paul's the worst sinner he knows. And he says, Jesus came to save people like me. He came to save people like you. Isn't that amazing? And the Spirit regenerates the worst kind of sinners. In Corinthians, Paul says, he gives this tremendous list of terrible people, terrible sins. And he says, such were some of you. And you were just like that. Don't look into the world and think, oh, they're so different from us. No, no, you're just like them, but you've been saved. Because God wants to save people like that. And Jesus came to save people like that. And the Spirit regenerates people like that. You're just like them, except you're saved by grace. Matthew is the worst of sinners. And Jesus came to save him. The second thing we see here is a sovereign call. We see, we see this poor sinner. And then we see a sovereign call. As a tremendous demonstration here of, of sovereign grace. Because what we read is that Jesus calls him, says, follow me, and he just gets up and walks and follows Jesus. That's sovereign grace. Just turn over to Matthew chapter 19, where we see the same uh, truth being uh, taught by the Lord Jesus. Matthew 19 and verses, uh, well, verses 16 to 26 and really, you see there the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young man who, well, he loves his riches, doesn't he? Notice what Jesus says in verse 24. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the people heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. 
He says, people who, who love their riches, people who love their particular island, maybe riches and maybe something else, it's impossible for them to be saved. But with God it's possible. With men it's not possible. With God it is possible. And so, uh, that's a marvelous verse, verse 26. With God, it's not impossible. He's the God of the impossible. Well, that's what happens in the passage. Jesus says, follow me. I say to you, follow me. Tell me to take a hike. Jesus says, follow me. And because he not only speaks, but he speaks with power, Matthew follows him. Sovereign grace. That's God extending his omnipotent right arm. You see, God speaks and a universe comes into being. Jesus speaks and a soul is regenerated. It's a man by the name of um, James Chalmers. He, uh, he became a missionary and he went to, uh, forget the island now, and was killed and eaten by, by cannibals. But how he was converted is going to a uh, to a, a, an evangelistic rally. And um, the text was preached on from Revelation 22. The spirit and the bride say, come. Well, he went there to cause trouble. He didn't go there to be saved. He went there to be a disturbance, not to become a Christian. But the text is read and the text is preached. The spirit and the bride say, come. And he came. He was saved just like that. A sovereign grace. It's like Lydia. Paul speaks, and the Spirit opens up Lydia's heart. I mean, she's blind, and she's deaf, and her heart is hard. But Paul just speaks the word, and and sovereign grace comes into effect, and she sees. Her mind is open. Her heart is open. It's like Ezekiel 37. And so there's dead bones. They're dry as dust. There's no life in them. And... uh, God says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, you know, Lord. And God tells him, speak the word. And as he speaks, well, the dead bones begin to live. That's one of the most stirring passages in the Bible. That's sovereign grace at work. And that's what happened here. And so Jesus says, follow me. And he follows Jesus. Let me tell you about those Pitcairn men. Because what happened with those Pitcairn men is that one of them, remember I said there were two of them left at the end. And the two of them, for some reason, they found um, the Bible from the mutiny, uh, from from the bounty. They found the Bible from the ship. And for some reason, they began to read it. One of them was was illiterate. And the other one could read. So the other one taught the first one. And he taught the first one to read. By going through the Bible. Uh, One of them dies. Uh, Bad lifestyle, I'm sure. But the other one is converted. Comes to Christ. This is what he says. He says, I had been working like a mole for years and suddenly it was as if the doors flew wide open and I saw the light. I met God and the burden of my sin rolled away and I found life. So here's a man on a deserted island. Everybody's shut themselves off from him because he's such a wicked man. He's left reading the Bible and God saves him. Sovereign grace. That's sovereign grace. That's the work 
of the Almighty and the gracious Lord. And uh, imagine the, the response of joy and thanksgiving from those who are on the island and who witness um, all of his transformed living and all of his transformed life. What joy there must have been. J.C. Ryle says, there's no joy like the joy of conversion. No joy like Matthew would have experienced. That's why he says, I have to get everybody around me and tell them about this Jesus. Ryle says, nothing can happen to a man which ought to be such an occasion of, occasion of joy as his conversion. It is a far more important event than being married, or coming of age, or of being made a nobleman, or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It is being made a king and priest forever. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the noblest and richest of all families, the family of God. And no wonder then Matthew says, I've got I to have a great feast. I've got to tell people about this. I've got to let my family know. I've got to let my corrupt colleagues know. I've got to tell them about Jesus. They have to meet him. No wonder he wants to do that. So yes, here's a, here's a poor sinner and here is a sovereign call. And lastly, here is a, a useful life because God saves him. And Matthew now begins to live a useful life. He's been living a corrupt life. Now he begins to live a useful life. He arose and he followed. Luke tells us that he left all. And now God begins to use him. Now he begins to be the kind of man who's useful in the service of the Lord Jesus. Amazing that God uses all kinds of people, doesn't he? I don't know what background you have. I don't know how, how low you sank in your sin, but God can use you. Not because you're something special, but because God is great. And he can use, he can draw straight lines with a crooked stick. And he used Matthew, you see. He used Matthew as a, as a witness. If you go over to, to Luke 5, 29 and 30, read, you read about that, that banquet. Read about him, him wanting to get everybody around. And so uh, Matthew decided, I, I have to tell my friends about this. Because Matthew would have understood how those lepers felt. Remember the lepers in 2 Kings 7? They're in the city and like everyone else, they're starving because the, the Syrians are all around them. But then they finally go out of the city, do these lepers, and they find that the Syrians have gone and they left all their food and they've got all this food amongst them. Then they realize, oh, we better tell the people inside the city who are starving and dying. Well, Matthew would have understood that kind of emotional dynamic. I found life here. I've been forgiven. I need to tell people. I can't keep this to myself. It's terrible to do that. You can't keep Christ to yourself. How dare you keep Christ to yourself? Your responsibility and mine is to tell everybody about Christ. We found food, you see. The food has found us. And we need to tell people about this. Matthew would have understood that. Matthew would have understood about the woman at the well. You know, Jesus saves her. And then she runs. She goes to people in the town. And, 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 and she tells them, you need to meet this man who's told me everything about myself. She can't wait to introduce them to this Jesus. Come, come with me. 
Let me tell you. Let me show you. Let me, let me introduce you to Jesus. But you and I want to be like that as well. God uses him as a witness. There's a man by the name of Moffat, Robert Moffat. He's a missionary to South Africa. And he said once in a meeting, he says, I, from my porch, I look up, look to the north in Africa, and I see the smoke of a thousand villages filled with people who have never heard of Christ. He felt the burden, you see. He felt the burden that Matthew had to tell them about Christ. So, God used him as a witness. And then God used him as a writer. God used him as a writer. Because uh, we don't know what Matthew said. We don't have a, a record of anything Matthew said. We have a wonderful book written by him. Matthew wrote a book. And Matthew's... Uh, You see, he's an accountant, and God used the particular skills that he had uh, in the kingdom and for the good of the church. There's one writer, a New Testament scholar, who's describing the gospel of Matthew, the gospel that Matthew wrote, and he says this about about Matthew's book. He says, this gospel of Matthew is the product of an astonishingly ordered mind. Not everybody has an ordered mind. Some people's minds are like, you know, a jumble sale. Other people's minds, wonderfully ordered. Matthew has a wonderfully ordered mind. And this guy says, says, you read the book. You say, well, this was produced by an ordered mind. I read essays from students, and you can tell from the essay what the mind is like. That's what this writer is saying. So what God has done is God's taken Matthew with a particular skills that were well suited to his job and taken those skills and put it to use in the kingdom so that he produces this book, which 2,000 years later is a great blessing to us. So God used him as a witness, and God used him as a writer. So there you have those three points, a poor sinner and a sovereign call and a useful life now. Now, very quickly, in conclusion, three, uh, several lessons. First of all, Matthew's a, he's a man of humility. We need to learn humility, you and I. We're, we're proud by nature. We want to be humble like Matthew. Uh, Matthew doesn't call himself Levi, he calls himself Matthew. Levi, the other gospel writers call him, and um, that may have been his family name, and if that's his family name, then it probably means that he was from a line of priests. But Matthew doesn't say, well, my name's Matthew, and I'm from this distinguished line. No, that's not Matthew's way. He's a humble man. And in fact, Matthew, when he describes himself as one of the twelve, because there are lists in each of the Gospels, lists of the 12 disciples. Only in Matthew is he described as Matthew the tax collector. The other Gospel writers don't do that. But Matthew, when he refers to himself, as Matthew the tax collector. It's like saying, I'm, I'm Matthew the adulterer. There's a man not trying to impress you. There's a man of humility, a man conscious of his his lowest state, the man of humility. Secondly, there's the gospel of grace. This is a gospel of grace. Jesus says, follow me. Somebody said recently, I think at our church here, that all other religions, uh, they call you to do something. And Christianity alone says it's done. 
Well, that's the way it is with Matthew. Jesus doesn't say, well, you need to do this and this and this and this and this. He just says, follow me. Follow me. Everything's been taken care of. The way of salvation's been looked after. The propitiation's been provided. Grace has been poured out. A sacrifice has been given. It's all been done. Just trust me and you'll be saved. So this is a gospel of grace. Thirdly, the result is a church of peace. A church of peace. Now imagine the disciples in church. Imagine the apostles in church. And over here is Matthew. Matthew's sitting over here. And Matthew was Matthew the tax collector. And over here is sitting Simon the zealot, also one of the twelve disciples. And imagine the dynamic, because Matthew's a traitor. And Simon, he kills traitors. I mean, that's what he does. He is just the patriot of patriots. And he eliminates people like Matthew. That's what he does, literally. But now they're in the church. Now they're saved. And you know what? They get along. Because when you're in Christ, you're one. And so in the church, you have Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. So no Christian should... You'd say, well, I can't get along with so-and-so. Now, there are times when, because of sin, relationships are broken. But you always want to be ready to say, should there be repentance, I'll gladly embrace you. Because God brings this extraordinary thing about where people at polar opposites in the world are brought together in the church. And then there's a perspective of hope. A perspective of hope. We need never give up on anyone. People should not have said, well, <laughs> there's Matthew sitting at the, at the table. There's no hope for him. Other people might be saved. You know, they're kind of close to the kingdom, but Matthew, too far gone. Maybe you and I feel that way about certain people. They just seem so hard. It must never feel like that. I understand how that feels. But when I feel like that, I know it's wrong. Because sovereign grace is able to save the worst of sinners. God is able to save a Matthew. God's able to save me. He saved you. Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer cannibal, was saved. Nebuchadnezzar was saved. That man who killed Christians in the first century, Saul, he was saved. That tax collector was saved. You were saved. Never give up hope for anyone else. And then a heart of forgiveness. Can you imagine Matthew, this despised, corrupt individual who is forgiven, not being willing to forgive someone else? Imagine someone who's grievously sinned against him, coming in repentance and asking forgiveness, the way that prison guard came to Cory Ten Boom and said, please forgive me. 
I can't see Matthew saying no. And certainly Corey Ten Boom didn't say no. So yes, a heart of forgiveness. When you realize that you know, you're the worst of sinners, God saved you, you're ready to forgive those who come in penitence to you. And lastly, there's a position of confidence. Position of confidence. You wonder whether anyone came to Matthew one time. You know, Matthew is about to speak somewhere, about to preach the gospel, and come and said, well now, you have no right to stand up and speak. You have no right to stand up and preach the gospel. You're Matthew the tax collector. Well, Matthew's in a position of confidence. He says, of course I'm Matthew the tax collector. I'm not hiding it. It's in my book. Read it. But I'm here to tell you about Jesus who saves Matthew the tax collector and others like him. Brownlow North was like that. Someone came to Brownlow North and said to him, well, I wrote a letter to him before he was about to preach and said, I know about your background and I know about your sin. How dare you stand up? And if you do stand up to preach, I will denounce you to your face right in the meeting. And he got up, did Brownlow North at the meeting, and he, he read the letter. He says, I'm not hiding anything. This is who I am, and this is what God has done, and this is how gracious Christ is. It's a position of, of confidence. Because your hope is not in yourself, but in God. Jesus is the Savior. His blood cleanses you. His righteousness covers you. And you are now in him. How marvelous then to know that someone like Matthew can be saved. Someone like you has been saved. And now we then as the saved, the redeemed of the Lord, we take this glorious gospel into the world in the hopes that God will use it to save them. And how amazing for you if you're not a Christian. You look around you, you say, well, this is a ragtag band of people here. And I know some of them, I know what they're like. But you know what? God has saved them. These corrupt characters. God has saved them. They're going to heaven, not on the basis of their life, or their character, but solely by grace. If you think that, then you know God can save you as well. All he says is, repent and believe, you'll be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for sovereign grace and the saving work of Jesus. And we pray that you will continue with us. For those of us who know you, that you'll make us thankful and help us to remember Jesus in his death with love and devotion. And for those who are not believers, Father, we pray your mercy upon them. We pray that you'll call them as you did, Matthew. We ask in Jesus' name.